Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. Heineken Original Lager is made with pure malt and their famous A-yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Oof. All Sunday. I mean, Sunday was an all-time sports day. Let's just put it that way. And I started off slightly badly with the Eagles losing. So... It was like a sort of late afternoon Heineken kind of day for me, but man, did it make my day better. So if you're sitting back, you're checking out some shows, you're checking out some sports, it all goes down better with a cold Heineken. Pick up a pack or have it delivered today and drink responsibly. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor from TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, this is the way. It's Andy Greenwald! We talking Mando? Oh, Mando! I see you were renewed for season two, sir! COVID this could not great. stop your production! I would say this wasn't even on our rundown, but as longtime <laughs> listeners of The Big Picture know, we don't have a rundown. So Kai and I were talking before you arrived. Guys, hello. Happy Thursday. I'm getting a text message from my wife to stop shouting already. It's but going she loves that show. Great. It's going great. Um, Kai and I were chatting before you got here about the Baby Yoda, um, heavy usage of Baby Yoda in the second season trailer for Mandalorian. He's we're also going to talk about the third day today. We're going to talk about who we are who we are today. Uh, and then the second half of the show, we have Chloe Sevigny joining us, which is just incredible shit for your boy. Uh, but let's talk about Mandalorian because, as we all know, Baby Yoda's not in the trailer for the first season. Did you, we had no idea. Big surprise, yeah. Big, big surprise. Big reveal in the floating bassinet. There he is. He's all over this second trailer. You know what I mean? Like he's getting a lot of usage. So yeah, you're a guy. You have a team. Mm-hmm. You got you got a whole team of guys working for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Baby Yoda's representation? Did to get him so much more FaceTime in this trailer? What do you think those negotiations were like? Do you think Baby Yoda has has it gone to his head? I appreciate these questions. So thank you. Let me just say that as someone who's worked in the CGI puppet industry for a long time, this is a big, big moment for all of us. You know, the old days of where's your ping pong suit? Those are behind us now, <laughs> yes. collectively. Yes. Thanks to our Lord and Savior, Andy Circus. We are now where we always expected to be. We have a seat at the table. Um, I don't think this was a complicated negotiation, and here's why. I think that the people responsible for The Mandalorian have proven themselves to be nimble, modern thinkers who are uniquely acclimated to the way the game is played today. And I think all that Baby Yoda's reps had to do was just show them the plus minus. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I hate to be that. You know you know, I'm naturally the stats guy, and I, yeah. but I, and I hate to fall into that role on this podcast. But... I'll do it. And it's, Le- simply- it's LeBron off the floor. You know what I mean? Just you want Contavious Caldwell Pope out there? Outside of this podcast, how what, it, how what is the percentage of the Mandalorian season one conversation that was driven by Carl Weathers? You know what I mean? Like, they Not know. much. Yeah. They know. And if I could pivot this, because I'm, I'm, I'm running low on this bit. If I could pivot, I'll say that all of the chatter around season two, of which, of course, there was a lot, season two is a big hit, suggests that they have left a lot off of the table in this trailer. They have gone all in on the things that people loved and responded to in the first season. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of actors, 
some of whom who may have been on the show I made, and other characters who are rumored to be part of the second season. Are you saying Daniel Day-Lewis is in The Mandalorian season two? But the thing is, they haven't noticed him in Briarpatch yet. That's what <laughs> blows my mind. I, I, I outsmarted everyone <laughs> to a degree that I did not, did not expect. And in retrospect, maybe we overpaid for the Ed He Asker was suit. actually the drone pilot in Briarpatch. We just didn't, you know, nobody saw him. He, he was wearing a full Ed Asner skin suit, which was more expensive than you'd think. Um, so I, I, I just think I was very impressed with this trailer. And, and, I, and I think partly because of the fact that they clearly know that they have more stuff to watch or else they wouldn't have done exactly what you said. They would have saved him for the, for the, the, the crescendo of the piece. I don't want to be hyperbolic. I, I do want to be completely incapacitated, put into a hospital bed, have the show shot into my veins with a plunger and then have a steady drip of, you know, a slightly inconcentrate version of this show dripped mm. out over, spread out over the, the next two months. You know, like I'm okay. ready. I'm, I, I feel like that's where my body is heading. I'm trying to figure out the timing because it's the 30th, right? So there will yeah. be like a Mandalorian two days after the election. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. Yeah, that'll be a nice, nice come down. Uh, did you see my favorite thing on the internet? Or glow up. This, this, you know? this year <laughs> yeah. was Ben Mathis Lilly and Slate who wrote a piece called, I basically was like, I, I don't feel crazy for saying this and I know I'm not alone, but I would like someone to hit me on the back of the head with a shovel like a cartoon <laughs> character and when I wake up in six weeks. And I was like, that's exactly how I feel. Um, yeah. The, I remember the, when I, I think like right after Trump got elected, that's when it was like the spring after his, you know, his inauguration. And then there was like the, that next spring, I think was Dunkirk. Yeah. And I was like, I would be fine if Dunkirk was four years long. <laughs> and they just had to like bring me food in Dunkirk. That would be great. It would be weird if you were still in that movie theater this summer. Yes. You know what I mean? Like they <laughs> yeah. probably would have had to end your Dunkirk immersive experience at some point during the pandemic. That's true. If only, actually, the, the only way you would have known is that at a certain point, real three of Dunkirk would have been replaced with Tenet. <laughs> and you would have been like, oh. That would have been so convenient for, for Nolan. Great. Did you uh, watch, did you watch the Mando trailer at all looking for like Easter eggs or, or Star Wars clues? Like there's some Boba stuff floating around out there. Yeah. Uh, no, I, okay. I want to be straight, you know, again, stats guy, straight shooter. I'm just ticking off all my boxes today. Couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Don't even remember. I had to Google what time period the show is setting <laughs> because they're like, there's a race of magic warriors. And I was like, cool. Is this before star Wars? Is this mid star Wars? Where are we? Vis-a-vis, uh, Cassian Andor's, you know, suicide Does this run. this take I, place in a world where the Jub Jub song has not been removed from Return of the Jedi? Justice for the goddamn Ewoks. I, <laughs> like, I don't understand why you think you're making it better when you take away a merry anthem <laughs> from a race of teddy bears. Like, that doesn't make them cooler. You got to own it. Yeah. Anyway, I don't care about any of that stuff. And I don't think it's that controversial to say. What I really, really loved was the way the show carries itself, honestly. Like, it has, from jump, carried itself with the swagger of something that is a worthy inheritor of something that has meant a lot to a lot of people for a long time and knows what it is. It knows its lane. It knows the type of show it wants to be, which is something we talked about a lot when we did the first season. And on top of everything else, this is the first thing I texted you when I saw it, it looks 
like a hundred million bucks. I mean, oh this God. technology that they've invented to do the show in, and I think that Marvel has recently picked it up to use on some of their shows. Um, the slush fund that JPEG must be like being like, uh, hey, Bob, it's Bob. I'm seeing like a, a couple of uh, you know redacted line items Some here line, line in, items. in the budge. You know, are, are we open a new park somewhere? I mean, like, this no, my friend. This looks and, and I can't. I don't think it's just that we've become kind of inured to the CGI glowy flatness of all movies, but it just looks like what the movies look when like. they when they jump the bike speeders. And they, like the the drop that they do, I was like, I feel like a kid again. I feel like a kid again. And it's also just like very. It was a very smart trailer, and that it immediately was like, oh, we go, we're going to some ice. We're going on the boat. We're like, we're like mixing it up. We're going to some different spots. Like, I was very hyped. I don't know if we talked about this when because we were too busy ripping it to shreds, like like fresh boba meat in the pit of sarlacc. But one of the things that that did impress me about Rise of Skywalker was. And maybe this is because this is this is I don't mean this is a humble brag, but we talked about it. We went to the premiere of that movie and they invited all the people up on stage who worked on it. And this guy, Ben Burt, who is a sound designer, has worked on all the movies over 40 years. Right. And it's such a I don't know if it's underappreciated. People who really pay attention know, but the fraternity the of, of Star Wars like tradesmen. Yeah. But that that deep, like satisfying analog like chunk of a speeder. You know, the, the, there's something that grounds you that you're in this world where stuff sounds like stuff. And they've carried that over even into this, you know, post-CGI world. That was all over this trailer in a really satisfying way. Can't wait. Uh, you're talking about the confidence with which, the swagger with which that that trailer kind of presented itself. And I think that that's been a theme of a lot of the shows that we've praised on this year. Mm-hmm. When we feel like, I mean, this is some sort of new critical theory, but it's like when we feel like we're in not necessarily a safe pair of hands, but like a pair of hands that know where they're going and uh, that know what they're doing and know the story they want to tell and how they want to tell it. We're going to talk about two shows. I want to spend some time talking about third day because I feel like it's kind of flown under the radar. I saw some reviews that um, were kind of tepid. We're just like, Oh, like I, I think part of it is probably watching way ahead or I don't know. Just, it wasn't, wasn't certain critics bag. It's my bag. It is, it is very much my bag. So let's talk a little bit about what this is because I think actually a little bit of background could help. This is a show that's a co-pro between HBO and Sky Atlantic. It stars Jude Law, Catherine Waterston, and at least in the episode that we've seen, Patty Considine and Emily Watson. It is the work of two, two creators, Dennis Kelly, who's sort of a, um, a, a veteran UK TV auteur who's most noted, notably did um, a season of, of MI5, also known as Spooks. He did Pulling with Sharon Horgan, and he did Utopia, which is being remade or adapted um, as, a, as an American show for Amazon. And then there's this guy named, I believe, Felix Barrett, mm-hmm. who is, uh, runs a, a, an immersive theater company in England called Punch Drunk. And it's this combination of disciplines, I think. You know, theater, TV, and Mark Munden, who directed the first few episodes, is a badass filmmaker who started out with like Mike Lee and Derek Jarman and is is obviously just no one to fuck with behind a camera. And it is being told basically in this very elliptical way. The first few episodes are called Summer. Then there is going to be a live streamed play called Autumn. And then the second half of the season is called Winter. 
I know all of this. I am trying to stop myself from knowing anything else because I found yep. the experience of going into the show relatively cold, relatively blind to be so fucking great. I was just like, take me wherever you want to take me. I don't care if this is a mystery box show. I don't care if this is midsummer on midlife crisis, whatever this is, I'm here for it. Greenwald, what did you think? When we've talked about this, whatever age of television we're in, we have talked about it being, a, you know, an, basically a, an almost never ending tap of quantity at this point. There is a show for everyone in any mood you're in and whatever style you want it to be in. And sometimes when we have this conversation, we bemoan the lack of shows made for everyone. Let me note that while I say, this show was made for you and me. <laughs> and I love it so much. It fills me with joy to be talking to you about it on a podcast. I drank up the first episode like I want to say a water bottle filled with salt, but you won't get the reference unless you watch the show. It is so completely weird. Mm -hmm. It is so completely immersive, which is the key word probably for talking about and understanding the show. It is so completely my shit that it just filled me with, with joy. And I know that people who listen to this podcast know that I have a thing for potentially hyping or even overhyping little scene international Monday night HBO show starring Jude Law. <laughs> but if that's my bag, that's my bag, baby. Look, it's your corner. Because I just feel this is something I felt when I was a critic who had to watch everything. This is something I felt when I had the opportunity to make something. And it's just something I, it's just baked in now. If you have the chance and you're making something in this moment, you know what I mean? Like, like what does Ferris Bueller say when he gets to drive Cameron's car? Like, it's so choice. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you have the budget and the attention, fucking go for it. You know what I mean? And this show is the weirdo, mystery, surreal, emotional version of when the dudes in Ferris Bueller steal Cameron's dad's car and joyride over the streets of Chicago with a Superman theme playing. Is anybody living better than Jude Law right now? I mean, it must be so great to be an actor who got so much attention because of your devastatingly beautiful good looks and then to age into a dude who can just do stuff. I also feel like Jude Law's good looks are are like, um, I don't know. He's like, his good looks were slipping and then it was like Indiana Jones rescued them from falling into the, the pit of snakes and he's like, turn the corner to where he is just like a devastatingly beautiful middle-aged man now. I think there's a really important thing about this show. I, I, we're talking around it. I don't, I don't, I want to get into like the actual themes, but this is crucially for something that's so psychedelic, something that feels so dreamlike, something that has no map yet. I don't know where we're going. I, I think you can feel like, Oh, it feels like wicker man or it feels like midsummer. It feels like this. It, I don't know. It is propulsive. Like these scenes don't, linger they don't stay longer they're not yeah. the, the party guest who won't leave the scenes feel like they are they have a point for existing they they feel tight and i i think that that's something that a lot of mystery box shows but also shows that are about like 
you know, a, an exploration into the mind or something or a psychological exploration kind of lose because they're just like, well, there's no logic to how this is working out. It's really amazing that the show is the product of three or f- actually four because there's a second director who works in the back half of the season. So we haven't seen her work yet. Yeah, Philippa Lothrop. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's the work of many people because generally when you have something that is really heady or dependent on vibe or tone and then you bring in a filmmaker, sometimes they're at odds with each other. Sometimes they're they're cross purposes. The direction, this is probably, and I, I say this knowing what an incredible year for TV has been. I'm not sure if I have seen a better directed episode of TV than the first episode of the show directed by Mark Munden. It is yeah. absolutely hypnotic. I have, and, and it's the second episode. Visceral. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. here we go. Yeah. So there, there's a there, there. This is one of those things that it's not going to be for everyone, but basically to give people a little bit of a taste of it. Jude Law is uh, on the phone in England. Something has gone on back at home, but he has to finish an errand before he gets back there, something that is stressing him out quite a bit. Uh, he has an emotional experience in the woods and he sees someone hanging themselves and he rescues her. And she says, I'm from around here. And he she gets into his dinky Subaru, which again, I love Subarus. They're the perfect car for this for this type of show. There's something about that detail that just sticks with me. And she's like, take me to the island. And he drives to the coast and she says, the causeway will open soon. And there's this beautiful shot where underneath the waves, there is a winding road and the waves uh, recede. He drives on this windy road and all of a sudden he's in this other place, this island that feels a little culty. Yeah, called OC. And maybe all the people are secretly fish. I don't know. But Patty Considine is there as a pub owner who, and he is on one. He is he is reminding us that there are many El Cucos in the universe. For those of us who last <laughs> saw him on The Outsider. Um. This is the type of show that, look, I get it. Your mileage may vary, right? Like you, you, there's a fork in the road or a winding road under a causeway or whatever, where as soon as the the girl is like, take me to the island, you're like, okay, all right, I don't get it. Or you could begin to cackle with childlike glee as I did. And if you have any of that in you, you will want to go along. I don't feel manipulated. I feel immersed. And so I think that's the kind of thing to dwell on here. This is, um, as soon as I watched the show, I had to text my friend and, and colleague, Eva Anderson, uh, because not only is Utopia, which I have not seen because it's not available officially here, uh, mm-hmm. probably to do with the fact that they want the American version to be the version, but like she carries like a, a burned copy of that show with her wherever she goes. It's her favorite show of the last however many years. But wow. she also, when she's not working on shows like You're the Worst in Briarpatch, does immersive theater and does games. And when I mm-hmm. say games, there's a whole, you might know this, I kind of didn't, but there is a whole thriving subculture of like immersive theater games where you sign up to play something and you find a code or a, a, a key in the back of a magazine and you travel to a place and you basically are living a video game without the video. Yeah. And her commitment to this is incredible and it's super cool. And if this is appealing to people, check out her and her work and all the other things that she's been supporting. But I am a lazy person who also has children. And I, I, I am in awe of this, but I also can't do it. I can watch the show and I kind of, and I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that there is something, its project is slightly different than other television shows because yes. of its desire to draw us in to this cross-media, cross-genre headfuck. Yeah. And... It's really cool to experience. The game thing is really interesting because um, 
I think especially in blockbusters, we've seen the emergence of video game logic kind of infiltrate mm-hmm. narratives of film, you know, of, of visual storytelling, where especially in action films or in superhero films, it's just, you know, boss level, boss level, boss level, big boss, you know, and it feels like everything is like these mini quests that you have to bring back these totems from whatever your adventure is to eventually unlock the final question of this story. This is that in a different way. I feel like the prompts make me think of like eight, like games that people used to play in like the eighties of like, you are walking in the woods. This happens. You must choose to go left or right. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like very elemental primal decision-making yeah, I mean, I, I was going to think, I think that at some point in the eight year, eight and a half years we've been doing this show, I've talked about this before, so super fans let me know. But in many ways, the most influential game of my life was this game called Zork that hmm. was a text-only computer game. It predates me and us, right? I think it came from, it was started in the late 70s, but I remember playing it on like an Apple IIc mm-hmm. when I was eight years old. And it's a text input game. And the, you 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 go to the screen and the words appear. It says, uh, west of house, you are standing in an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. And then what do you do? Open right. the mailbox, go into the house, look around, and y- you have to fill in the blanks with your mind. But as you said, it is not about achievement. It is on a very pure level about telling you a story and um, not telling you a story, dropping you into the into the middle of a story and you have to wander your way out, which is a di- very different thing and can well, and, be really and, and intoxicating. Kelly and Barrett and, and, and the creators basically take this narrative logic, uh, essentially almost of choose your own adventure or something, mm-hmm. and they made it with very um, theatrical... I, 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 don't think, I don't mean theatrical in like an, uh, a hammy way. Very probing monologues very, you know, like transparent, emotionally like vulnerable acting from from Jude Law, and then later in the first episode from Catherine Watterson. Very creepy performances from Emily Watson and Patty Considine, and they are also very, very the, the cinematic thing that I keep thinking about when I when I was rewatching one, and 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 I, I watched a little bit of two, but I'm not going to speak about it. It's just how um, specific they are with POV. They just like the, everything that you are kind of taking in as a viewer is what the Jude Law character is taking in on the show. And you, you you really aren't getting much more than that. And so much of it is creeping around or looking and seeing across the street that something weird is happening. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I love this show. I, I, I can't, I, I, I think the performances are dynamite. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit. You mentioned the Subaru. The anxieties that this show is sort of preying on. Yes, that's where I wanted Law to go to. Are, and, you know, forgive me and Andy for doing this, but they are very specifically targeted, I think, at, at middle-aged men, should I say? So far, through episode one. Through episode one. Financial concerns, family concerns, shit about, like, I, I need to be at a certain place at a certain time, and if I don't, like, mm-hmm. not atomic bomb's going to go off, like, it, it's Armageddon, but I'm going to get in trouble for not participating in this sort of preordained schedule of my life and it it never is explicitly about that it never says that this is about a guy who needs to break free from the the sort of you know his midlife 
shackles or anything, but it it suggests it in a way that I I definitely was like, oh man, this is this is a guy who the walls are really closing in on him, and then all of a sudden he finds himself in a place where there are no walls. Oh, that's the most disturbing part of it, without question. I mean, there is something that many people tend to do as they get older, and either you are nodding your head as we say this, or we are, let us be your Sherpas down the (laughs) downward slope of human life. But there is an attempt, a natural human attempt to solidify something in a home. And I don't, I mean that, you know, figuratively, but it could be a house or your apartment. It could be a marriage or a family, but there are certain things that have to be kind of bedrock for you to wander out into the cross currents that exist in the world, knowing that there's something pinning you down to the ground. And if those things at home are imperiled while you're out, or if the kite string that connects you to them is somehow severed, it is, you know, it's devastating and psychologically devastating in a way that maybe it it doesn't seem from the outside equal to the actual events. You know, in theory, who wouldn't want to spend a night in a merry, nautically themed pub on a British island? Getting pissed, yeah. Where the drinks are free. Yeah. So it taps, it doesn't just tap. I mean, it stabs right into that very sensitive point. And Jude Law is one of a handful of actors who we can tolerate being that close to and that, you know, vibrating on the same frequency as, as he experiences those things, which are almost entirely internal. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about we are who we are before we get to my interview with Chloe Sevigny? So speaking of old people, mm-hmm. <laughs> is this, this show might not be for us because this is about the opposite. Yeah. This is, um, it makes a really interesting double feature. And these are both airing on Monday. On HBO, both are international co-pros. Yeah. This is, and I, I almost have to like hit the reset button in my brain to talk about this show because they couldn't be more different. Not just because We Are Who We Are is essentially about the emotional travails of young people, but what I was saying before about you know multiple people contributing to this razor-sharp, immersive, theatrical mm-hmm. experience. We Are Who We Are is, falls very firmly into another camp of a genre of show that it could only exist within the last decade, which is, hey, you're incredibly talented. Let's vibe with you for a while. Yeah. It, 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 it's unfair to put them back to back on the same night. It's almost unfair to talk about them because Luca Guadagino is a masterful filmmaker. I mean, this is a beautiful show to look at, just like Call Me By Your Name is beautiful. I want to know who, who at HBO you know, is, has got the My Beautiful Friend account and is like, you know what? I just need to, I got to spend some more time in Italy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah. Want to? yeah I mean, yeah. It, it, so this is a show about a young kid, 14 year old kid who travels from New York. Well, he arrived, we don't see him travel. He arrives in a coastal part of Italy with his outside of Venice. Yeah. With his mom's both of whom are in the military. Um, His mother, Chloe Sevigny, is taking command of this military base. His other mom, or he he just calls her by her name, Maggie, is a medic in the military as well. Played by Alice Braga, yeah. And the first episode just kind of follows him and his iPod as he wanders through this new reality and 
experiences things and drinks a lot and runs into some local kids. And there's a lot of sort of, you know, gauzy interiority and burgeoning sexuality. And every frame of the show is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite hang, mm-hmm. at least not yet. But I think it's a it, it's a very beautiful thing. And I and I just was my main thing when I was watching it was, I mean, what a, what a world where where if you like a filmmaker, a major corporation now like the De Medici's are just going to be like, okay, right, go bring right. us back something. Go go to the you know take this rowboat to the corners of your mind and bring us back what you catch. In the same way we were talking about how third day feels like this hybrid of TV and cinema and and, and theater. I, I think that we are who we are feels expressly explicitly cinematic to me, at least mm-hmm. so far. The way in which it is um and, and a very languid film for that matter, but I feel like the storytelling feels more like a European film than it does like any kind of television than we usually watch. Um I think I had a little bit more time for it. I would recommend people check out the second episode, um, which trods over much of the same ground as the first episode, but from different perspectives. And I'm just too curious to find out what's going on with Jack Dylan Grazer's kid and his mom, Chloe Sevigny, who have one of the all-time mom-son kitchen scenes that I've ever seen. Yeah, that was a lot. I mean, that's that scene happens after she cuts herself and he immediately begins sucking the blood from her finger. That's right. That's right. That's only, And that, that is only the second weirdest thing that happens. As one does. Um, one thing that I want to... You know, we, we've had a bunch of actors on the show recently and hopefully we'll have more again. But I, it, the, the, thing, the other thing that this double feature made me think of was the decision-making that a lot of actors make in their careers and, and which way they lean. Because basically, you could look at The Third Day, and I'm sure that um, Mark Munden you know, has a great reputation as he, he deserves. But I also get the feeling that after the success of Utopia, Dennis, Kelly, Dennis Kelly's new project probably was part of the allure sure. for the actors that have signed up for it. Watching We Are Who We Are and Chloe Sevigny Alice Braga, you know, who has a day job leading a television show, Queen of the South, Kid Cuddy's on the show. Like, there are other actors who are like, if this director calls, I will go and do anything because right. that work is going to be masterful and singular and beautiful. And it, this, this, this argument, it's not even an argument, but this theory doesn't really work because The Third Day is so well directed. But I'm curious about actors who choose script first always or choose director first always. And then sometimes you hit on both. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, like, there, that you can't kind of can't go wrong if you just make your career. And we were talking about this the other week about Oscar Isaac or about what Adam Driver's doing. If you're just like, you know, there are 20 directors on this list, and if they ever call, I'm going to say yes. The, sh- the the shows are equally dreamy. I mean, not equally, but they're both. I think have a dreamlike quality in certain places. I think we are who we are replicates the experience probably of what it's like to be around the characters that they are concentrating on. So I th- I found that the first episode obviously had a real like nervous energy when it was following mm-hmm. when it was following Jack Dylan Grazer's character around and Frazier his character is not named Frazier Grazer though which... no right it's not Just and to be clear. yes but you know obviously we are who we are is explicitly and anybody who's watched the trailer has seen what it's about which is a lot of it is about identity is it very explicitly about like the way we have lived or who we are in the last four years the show is set in 2016. It's interesting to see two shows kind of come 
at something from the opposite direction. Whereas mm -hmm. third day probably will feel much more allegorical and, you know, like obtuse in places. And we are who we are is like much more like straight on, like this is what it's like to be young now. Um, he, as someone who still hasn't done his homework, um, which will surprise no one. I've still have not watched Euphoria for the same reasons I haven't. I didn't before, even though you know mm -hmm. everyone, everyone who I trust has recommended it to me. I would love to be able to talk to you about it. I just didn't have the headspace for it last sure. year, and I should probably try and catch up. But is that a comp here? Like, is this is it attempting in a very obviously in a very different way? But is it? Do, do those shows have anything to say to one another? If you liked one, would you like this one? I I mean, this definitely is is at a different frequency. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's operating at a different frequency. Like, Euphoria felt like it was mixing and matching popular television tropes and subverting them with either narrative twists or the, you know, putting forward people who ordinarily wouldn't get to play out those scenarios, you know? And then also a lot of Euphoria is just like, well, it just seems like it's absolute fucking hell to be a high schooler now. You know what I mean? Like in terms of what might right. happen to you. I mean, we are who we are. I've only seen I've only seen the two episodes, but it's much more um a lot more space in that show. You know, I think that Sam Levinson has a much more a much different eye than Luca Guadagnino. And he's like he's he's sort of compressing a lot of stuff into a, a frame, into an episode, into a conversation, mm -hmm. into a scene. And Luca's just kind of like, ah. They're just gonna let it happen. You know what I mean? It really gonna, is. I mean, yeah. The, the, this this episode just sort of doesn't end so much as it collapses back onto a bed right. and exhales, right. and then it's, it's just like a fucked up, one. long, sun beaten day. Yeah, right. Do you? Um, so we should get into this. You talked to Chloe Seven. You about it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Did Did you talk to her about um, mother son relationships? <laughs> no, I did not. That she's she's up? she's a new mom, but we were we just chatted from. She was in New York. And we chatted about what it was like to, she was pregnant when she shot the show and um, she was like, you know, talked about like the sort of loneliness that co sometimes comes along. She, you know, she's talked about, she talked a little bit about you know, like she's worked on some sets where there's a little bit more of a community, but that in this particular one, you know, she said she was something like 45 minutes from her closest coworker when it came to, you know, where she was living. And so that it kind of contributed to the feeling of displacement of the show, which you can kind of see so far with her character and i think we'll probably see further into the season so we can we can just jump to that what, to what that. is your what is your uh top what is what is apex mountain for chloe Sevigny in your view in personally your yeah well very big fan of her performance in russian doll i'll, I'll be it briefly mm -hmm. as like a icon as like that's that's chloe Sevigny. really into her in zodiac oh that's a good one um I, I you know, she's been in so much stuff. I think Big Love and Kids are obviously the ones I think she's most known for. But my my personal favorites are like the ones where she like turns up as like in Bloodline. You know what I mean? You know. I'm torn between Last Days of Disco. Oh, she's incredible in that. It's, it's streaming on Peacock. Yeah. Um, Sean Fennessy, if you're listening, let us do a Whit Stillman episode. Of Big Picture. <laughs> I'll even do a rundown. Um, so I'm torn between her performance in Last Days of Disco and the time I went to Del Posto in Manhattan for my birthday, and she was having just a spectacular long lunch with what appeared to be a very extended family. And yeah. I'll just say this. They were doing a fancy restaurant lunch the way you're supposed to. A Good. way I never have. 
but like where there which are is like mul- the entire table is covered in in plates and like it's just going on for hours. Well, it wasn't like Caraba's Macaroni Grill. I mean, it was like they clear, they they bust the tables. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's like a four star restaurant. But I'm saying like there were multiple shots of Caraba's, man. I'm just I'm a friend of the family. Not support the restaurants, but <laughs> but I'm just saying like there were multiple bottles of like sparkling wines and waters being like you know it just was a very classy. I was I was like this is my birthday this is why I'm here but I had the feeling that she could be there any week. It was like a Wednesday. It would yeah, be, it would be fine. I mean, she is she's a New York legend. Like when you would see her in New York, you know, I remember when I used to work at Kim's, the record store on St. Mark's, and she would come in. I would just be like, I'm I'm in New York City. This is really happening. Um, let's get into my interview with Chloe Seventy on Monday. Andy and I will be back. We have a guest on Monday. We'll have a guest on Thursday as well, and we'll probably doing some Emmys recap. Emmys recap and the boys. And the boys. So exciting stuff. And great to see you, man. Great job, Francis. Really, really, really good work. No, solid work from you, Dad. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's and Netflix have churned up something extra special. When you pop open a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream, you can experience the magic of things that go perfectly together. And just like your Netflix watch list, there's something in a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream for everyone. Follow the sweet and salty pretzel swirls like you follow the plot twists of your favorite drama. Or dig out a fudge brownie every time you laugh out loud at your new comedy special. With the perfect mix of peanut butter intrigue, pretzel drama, and fudge brownie belly laughs, Netflix and chilled pairs well with any of your Netflix originals. You know what I like to watch on Netflix? It's coming back soon. And I love doing this while I eat Netflix and chilled is Big Mouth. Big Mouth's very funny. Big Mouth makes me happy. It's it's a safe spot. And for me, nothing goes with a safe spot like a big pint of ice cream. So that's my jam. I like binging Big Mouth while I binge Netflix and chilled. Dig into Ben & Jerry's Netflix and chilled anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. Heineken would like to remind you that it's time for seasonal beers again. That's right. If you thought a cold, crisp summer Heineken was something, just wait until you taste the Heineken fall lineup or autumn, depending on your zip code. Is it a new product? Many people are asking. No. Just the same great tasting lager that's perfect for any season. And I cannot wait. Football's back. Getting a different round of shows coming, you know, so it's almost like the fall TV lineup is coming movies the, the festival films are going to start getting released the oscar contenders are going to start getting released you're going to stay in you know chill out you're going to watch something on tv have a heineken just you deserve it trust me heineken original lager is made with pure malt and their famous a yeast which makes heineken an all season all the time kind of beer so pick up a pack or get it delivered whatever your style and drink responsibly chloe thank you so much for joining the watch podcast Sure. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about meeting Luca because I know that you guys first met, I think, in Cannes, right? Or had you met before? Because you, you were on the jury when you met him? No, I was in Cannes. Okay. Cannes. Cannes. Can. Some people say Cannes. Some people say Cannes. I say Cannes. I usually um, mispronounce things, so it's probably <laughs> you. You probably yeah, got a bit. Most, most Americans say Cannes, and I think the French say like Cannes. Yeah. Right. So then I say can, like tomato soup can. <laughs> I'm not sure which is right. But um, yeah, so I was in Cannes uh, with The Dead Don't Die, directed by Jim Jarmusch, who opened the festival. And then I had a short film that I directed that was like closing the festival 
in, a, in one of the shorts programs. And Luca was there with a short film that he had directed for Valentino. And yeah, you know, we had a, we had a sit down. We sat down and, and had some uh, chicken tenders and uh, <laughs> talked about highbrow movies and ate, you know, fried food. How are chicken tenders in can? <laughs> They're really delicious, especially when you've overindulged in the rosé the night before. They, they get the spot. Chicken tenders will do that. You know, whether they're in the, South, the French Riviera or in, in Brooklyn, I hear they do the same thing. So when you met, was yes. it kind of a, a kindred spirits thing? Like, did you immediately sort of recognize this as a person you'd like to work with? Immediately, immediately, I was crushed out on him. He was so charming and dynamic and just there was like a level of intimacy that I appreciate and, and, and like there's a romanticism to him, yet his humor is really biting, you know, that whole dichotomy was like just, I fell for him, the climb sinker. And when you... When you were talking, I mean, was was this idea already gestating with him, or was it just like let's work was, together? But at some he's point? always doing like a hundred and one things. So I was asking about like you know the Call Me by Your Name sequel and like all these other projects that he is attached to. And you know, originally he was only going to direct a few episodes of this. Okay. And, um, and then I think another project that he was working on fell apart, so he decided to direct the whole thing and luckily for all of us you know because it's so great to be able to work with someone so extensively on so many hours worth of you know television and that is like a new trend in tv with one director and um if i really experienced that i mostly had like in my tv experience you've had a rotating director so to really sink into it and really be with someone really with the character and developing the character with someone over you know so many episodes was, was just you know it was so fulfilling so i want to ask you about this character because she's so fascinating so sarah is a woman taking command of an american military base in italy I was curious about what's on the page versus what you're bringing to it, how collaborative it was sort of coming up with this character with Luca and the writers and sort of what what you brought to it that maybe if you just any other actress or any other performer taking a look at it wouldn't have seen it. Oh Lord! I'm like a total narcissist. <laughs> no, because like you know, the thing is, is I was wondering is is the the so when you sort of are introduced in the episode one, and we can we're gonna probably air this one after the first episode, so people have gotten a chance to see it. Uh-huh. But like your vibe before you change into your military uniform, I was like, oh well, really, only one person in the world would with the combat boots and the jeans like that and enter a room yeah. like that. So I was just wondering how much of this is your sort of like your crafting of Sarah. I think, you know, we're kind of on the same page as far as like, you know, inspiration for her and her look. I, I came in with some references and Luca and his costume designer had similar ones. So I think we just kind of thought of her as like this, you know, privileged girl that joins the military to like impress her father and perhaps has a political career in mind. So that's kind of um, a common trajectory. And, you know, maybe she was like, you know, a bit alternative or into like, you know, something different as a youth. She didn't follow the regular, you know, preppy kind of trajectory. And so we both, I don't know, we both kind of thought of her as the same. So we were on the same page. Um, so I'm not really answering your question. No, it's a, 
But did you like basically did you craft a lot of backstory for Sarah? Because you mentioned that that alternative, you know, maybe like this well, is a person. I just, I, I'm still like, and I met with some women who served in the military. So I'm still like perplexed. Like, I mean, especially under our current administration, like you know, just why she would want to, you know? Yeah. So yeah. when I and we have a military advisor, and for me that was always like the biggest. The question, you know, like what makes one want to, what is the calling? What is one searching for? What are they hoping for? And of course there's, you know, 101 answers. And I tried to like incorporate a lot of them in, into her backstory, you know? Well, I was, I would imagine for someone who works at like, you're, cause you're pretty prolific. I mean, when you go back through your filmography and all the stuff you've done on TV, it's, you work at a pretty steady clip, but I would imagine mm-hmm. it's like you have a very regimented life when you're on set and when you're doing mm-hmm. a role and then when you're off, it's probably like that regimented sort of nature changes a lot. Like I was curious whether you identified with the idea of like repetition and like rituals and stuff within the military. And if, if there's I any, and like I came, I grew up in a very conservative family and tradition was very important. And like, you know, and the repetition of like, you know, of what my parents provided me with, even with like, you know, the cards from my family member every birthday, every Christmas, and like having that kind of safety net that that can provide one, I think has really helped me in my life and in my career be more creative and take more chances because I felt such a sense of security as to where I came from. And I think a lot of people are searching for that and want to uphold that. And that's like why a lot of people join the military is because of its tradition and how unchanged it is. I was reading an interview you did back when you were doing press for like Lean on Pete, which is a movie mm-hmm. I really love. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just such a good one. And I love Andrew Hayes, such a great filmmaker. He's amazing. Yeah. And you were talking about, cause I think you shot that in Oregon, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and you were. I think you were talking in this interview a little bit about, like, you know, this is this is a little bit tough because you were saying like when you're shooting Bloodline, it's okay, it's on these, you know, the same time zone as the East Coast, and you can kind of do that, but that you're a little bit more selective when it comes to like choosing to like carve out a huge chunk of your life and go somewhere pretty far away to go work on a, a, a whether it's a show or a film. But this obviously going to Italy and and going through what was a momentous like life change or the beginning of one for you, were you apprehensive at all about like making this big move to do a show like this? Um, I think because it was a limited series, I wasn't as much so. Like if I had to sign on for six seasons in Italy, I'm not sure that I would have done it. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so far um but i mean i just wanted to work with luca and with you know be back at hbo again and i think you know uh, everything they put out is so great and it's just it, it seemed to to really fit in with my career and the kind of work that i want to put out there and i think it was touching on so many subjects that you know are prevalent in the dialogue today in society and things we need to address and talk about and, and, and even more, you know, and, and see more stories about, you know, kids questioning their sexuality or their gender and, you know, gay women in the military. And, you know, there's so many things that this show provided. I think that I would just could not do it. But now that I have a child, I think, yes, the right. moving forward, I think that is a big challenge for actors. You know, there's, there's, so much inconsistency in in your work often then when something comes along like this like you, you for me i have to take a job you know and, and i want to take this job but 
now I don't know what my next job is or where my next paycheck will come from. So that's a little, it's, it's, you know, kind of a, a wild ride for an actor, that, that inconsistency. Um, so then when you're on set and love that, then like, this is your mark, you hit it there. And like the kind of, you know, the way a set is run and then, then that is so like comforting to be back in that cradle the <laughs> <laughs> Just feel like this is the time we are expecting you. This is the time that you can leave. Yeah. I, I imagine also it's pretty complicated now because from everything I've heard, everybody who's like taking jobs now has to sign up for some pretty, it's a pretty extensive commitment just to even shoot something like a TV show. Cause like if you're going to Canada to shoot it, or if you're going to Budapest or wherever people are shooting stuff, you have to like go through the quarantine and stay there and like be on set. Yeah. Like, yeah there's so no it's, like leaving on the weekend anymore. I guess that's the big thing. That, yeah. yeah. That there's, yeah. I don't know how people do it with families. I'm going to have to like, you know, call some actor friends and see, I think, you know, um, yeah. And then, you know, there's all those addictions and there's all those actors with all those addictions. You never trust. Are they really going to quarantine? Yeah. Right. Right. Or just like people who just aren't taking, taking it seriously. You see that everywhere yeah. else where you're just like, oh man, they're like, so you're just in this bar with this other person. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was reading an interview with Luca about the show and he was talking about that he sort of was, he, I, I think, and I think the show really reflects this when you watch a few episodes, the, the sort of a feeling of displacement that comes with being... I suppose a stranger in a strange land, um, but also like wanting to belong, which obviously the military provides people. It's curious for you, you know, whether shooting in an, in another country like this. And I, I, where, where did you, where did you actually shoot the show? We were in northern northern Italy, northern in like uh, Chioggia, uh, which they call like Little Venice, okay, and outside Vicenza. And I was staying in Padua. Like we were in like a whole region and. Uh, the cast and crew was very spread out. Like I was staying 45 minutes away from where Luca was staying. Oh, wow. So was there not like a lot of hanging out going on? Sadly, no, there wasn't a lot. And then we were also shooting 60 weeks. So there wasn't a lot of downtime. Wow. So it must have kind of almost added to the, to the, the loneliness of the role then, or the loneliness of the experience, right? It was one of the more lonely experiences I've had, especially the town that I was staying in, Padua. There was not a lot of tourism, so there was not a lot of people speaking English. <laughs> and that can be very isolating. Like, uh, no menus in English. You know, usually in, like, major you know, European city, you can, you know, get a translation. So that, it, it got a little... And I was pregnant, so I was hormonal and feeling even more lonely. And, yeah, it, it was pretty isolating, I have to say. Well, I can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to complain. Am, um, I, am I really as an yeah. actor? Are you allowed to? Are I think you're allowed like to you say, I think you privileged asshole. Being lonely <laughs> is not a privilege. Like, you're allowed to be like, it, it kind of sucked. I was wondering about. Uh, but I'm lonely on almost every set. I feel like I got yeah, yeah, Are you really? Very well. I, yeah. I, feel, I find so much like comfort and strength in my friendships and, you know, my relationship and my relationship with my family that yeah it's 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 yeah i have to get lonely do you find it easy like are, are you a quick friend like when you're on set with people like do you make friendships very easily or is it sort of more difficult um usually there's like one or two people that i'll really click with yeah like uh, the woman that played my wife elisa braga and i we really clicked but she- she was also, she was staying an hour from me. So oh, like, man. we hung out a few times offset, but it just wasn't conducive to that. You know, and I didn't have a car and there's not really like, 
transportation out there. Was, yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't easy. Sounds a lot yeah, like yeah. Los Angeles. <laughs> like in there, LA. Well, there's, well, now there's Ubers in LA. Remember, it was only like the cab drivers and were always assholes and were always yeah. cheating you. I, when I first moved out here, that was the biggest adjustment. Ubering makes LA a lot easier. Yeah. That's true. Um, I can't wait to get an Uber again back out here. Um, I was curious about working with Jack a little bit because you know the scene in the kitchen of the first episode with the two of you with the with the roast is definitely right, like super. Slap. Yeah, the slap. It's really cool because usually you have to wait for a moment like that in a story because that reveals something about it. But they it's sort of inverted where this very like provocative moment between a mother and son happens and you're left to wonder what it is about their relationship that opens up, you know, that kind of, I guess, intimacy, but also just he obviously feels like he can do that and get away with it. Um, yeah. He's quite a talented actor. I, I was curious oh what it was gosh. like to work with him because he's really like vibrating on another frequency in this show. I mean, the energy on that kid. I mean, we were all just like, I think he, him and Luca really like set a tone and they, and Luca's very energetic as well. And the level of professionalism that I, that he brought, I think, also helped elevate everyone because we had so many like first timers working on set, and just that he was so professional and so enthusiastic that everybody just kind of fed off of that. And I mean, my scenes with him were my favorite scenes to do, and and you know, I think Sarah's, you know, somewhat in love with her son, and and you know having to be the disciplinarian and also, you know, feeling guilty for taking him away from where he wants to be and focusing on her own job. I think there's, you know, she can't help but spoil him, which is something I've been thinking about a lot. Like how does one not spoil a child if one can provide certain things, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, she's in this military background. It's very disciplinarian. And like the kid, obviously, I, I think in the beginning of the series, at least what I've seen, doesn't have a ton of discipline. Uh, and she no. almost kind of like, you know, she kind of facilitates that a little bit in the beginning and she allows him to drink. She allows him to kind of wear what he wants to wear. It's such a fascinating relationship. It is. It is. I'm still, I still haven't really made sense. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, it must have been really interesting to play that role. I think for a variety of reasons. One is, I think it, it it's impossible to ignore you got your start with kids, you know, and yeah. now you are in a piece that is, I don't know, dealing with somewhat, somewhat of the same themes about like growing up and, and, and the, like the hard lessons that come with it. And now, but you're almost, you're this parental figure. You're this adult figure in a coming of age story. And I know you love coming yeah. of age stories, but is, do you yeah. ever have to like pinch yourself and be like, Oh, I can't believe I'm the, like, I'm the suit here. You know what I mean? I'm like the square parent. I just more pinch myself like, wow, I can't believe I'm still acting, but I still have like maintained a career and I'm still in something that's, you know, hopefully relevant and, you know, um, game changing in a way. And I'm still getting to work with, you know, provocateurs, which is what's always interested me. And, you know, uh, yeah, I'm playing the adult, but, you know, at least there's something interesting with the kids and, and my adult dynamic and hopefully you know I, i'm not you know so much of the suit but you, you mentioned you know you can't believe you have a career but your career has been i so i mean to me at least like so cool because it just seems like when you go through the list of everything you've done on tv and and film like you just 
rarely are you in ever any ever in anything that's boring and you always seem to work with incredibly interesting people like i know that you've been directing yourself do you find mm-hmm. yourself as you think about that more or as that, as you get a little older like watching directors work in a different way like watching luca work and think oh i might crib that i might steal that i might i wonder why he did that I mean, I've always been pretty spongy. I've always like kind of watched every department. I've always like meddled. I've also I've been told to focus on my own job a couple times in the last. So I've been I was kind of like a control freak, a little bit, yeah, a bit of a meddler, a bit of a sponge. So I feel like I've watched like you know every every director from from the get go. You know, from Harmony through you know Herzog and Fincher and like things that I want to do and things that I don't want to do is, or ways that I would want to be treated or not treated, you know, Yeah. and try and try and implement that when I'm, when I'm directing, you know, even like seeing the way directors interact with different crew members and, you know, all of that. It's been a real education. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you, uh, you calling it. It's been really, it's been a well, treat. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So take care. Thank you for all your kind words. Really oh yeah. Take care. It. Okay, you too. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Ben and Jerry's. When you pop open a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream, you can experience the magic of things that go perfectly together. With a perfect mix of peanut butter intrigue pretzel drama and fudge brownie belly laughs, Netflix and Chilled pairs well with any of your Netflix originals. Stock up for your next Netflix night anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-N-J-E-R-R-Y.com.